Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Last of Her Name has already earned some wonderful praise. Dave Eggers calls it a mesmerizing and deeply felt debut that affirms all that is great about short fiction. Gish Jen writes, what a basket of jewels. Each of these stories is elegant, poignant, and multifaceted, a true pleasure. Um, those, are, those are some good blurbs, if, if you don't know. Um, all right, uh, Mimi Locke is the recipient of the Smithsonian Ingenuity Award and a finalist for the 2018 Catherine Ann Porter Fiction Prize and the Susan Atifat Arts and Letters Prize for Nonfiction. Her work has been published or is forthcoming in McSweeney's Electric Literature, Nimrod, Lucky Peach, Hyphen, The South China Morning Post, and elsewhere. Mimi is also the executive director and editor of Voice of Witness, a human rights oral history nonprofit she co-founded that amplifies the recovery of important and marginalized voices through a book series and a national education program. Mimi currently lives in San Francisco. And also joining us this evening is Amelia Gray. She's the author of five books, most recently Isadora. Her fiction and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Tin House, and Vice. She's a winner of the New York Public Library, Young Lion. Um, we're missing a, a word there, <laughs> award. Uh, and of FC2's uh, Ronald Sukunik Innovative Fiction Prize and a finalist for a WGA award and the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction. As a screenwriter, she's written for the shows Maniac and Mr. Robot. She lives in Los Angeles. We're incredibly fortunate to have Mimi and Amelia with us this evening. Please join me in giving them a warm welcome. Uh, hey. Thank you guys. Um, I, for one, am excited to eat my weight in Pocky. Um, please feel free to help yourself as well. Hi, Mimi. Hi. How's it going? Can I, good, thank you. Can I make a request? I hope so. Since this is going to be like a very intimate gathering, let's just pretend we're in my living room. Yeah. And if you could all move to the front. Scooch up. And then we might not even need the microphones, and it'd actually be kind of nice. That'd be it? nice. Yeah, sure. it'll be nice. Unless they're recording the podcast off it and they oh, need yeah, it or that's something. that's true. Dylan, what do you think? We need the microphones. Okay, we need them, but okay. it's like we're in, we're in your living room. We're having a very pretentious dinner we're party where queens. we're talking to you with microphones. <laughs> we're yeah. dramatic. Yeah. Dramatic queens. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I'm prepared to be enchanted by an, an excerpt of your short fiction, Mimi. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Anything will do. Okay. Um, I think I'm just going to read... Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to read a shorter excerpt. Okay. Um, so... Uh, going to read from the title story, Last of Her Name, which is uh, set in three time zones, and um, um, it's a sort of a dual narrative between a young girl growing up in 1980s England, in, uh, in an English suburb, and her mother as a young girl in World War II Hong Kong, and then 70s uh, English suburbia as well. Last of her name. England, 1983. 
At age 12, Karen knocks her teeth out. Lying in a stiff, tangled heap on the bedroom floor, she opens her mouth to let the blood seep out. And with her tongue, she feels one, two, three holes where her teeth used to be. She quietly marvels at the wreckage she's created. The wardrobe planted face down on the floor, the rug splattered with blood and mirror shards, the limp frayed coil of the skipping rope poking out from the rubble of upturned books and cushions. Moments earlier, Karen had tied one end of the rope to the door and the other end to the wardrobe in an attempt to recreate a scene from The Return of the Condor Heroes, her favorite Mohawk TV show. In this scene, the heroine, Dragon Girl, demonstrates her skill by sleeping on a single rope suspended four feet above the ground, the hem of her white robes grazing the floor with each soft exhalation. Sorry, I can't stop smiling because Corinne's giving me this look. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> okay, this is a serious story, damn it. Um, okay, it seems so effortless, so elegant. How was Karen supposed to know that her slight 90-pound self would be enough to send the wardrobe crashing to the floor? Looking up at the ceiling, Karen strains to wiggle her fingers and toes. They feel thick and dull as if wrapped in cotton wool, but at least she can feel them. She imagines her mother standing in the doorway, stunned into silence by the tableau of destruction before her eyes, then coming to her senses and rushing to her side so she can begin checking for wounds, tut-tutting all the while at this display of foolishness. Karen hopes she'll somehow realise that her daughter can't possibly be solely to blame for this mishap. Her poor father, perhaps, will be faulted for renting the Mohap videos in the first place, pirated recordings of Hong Kong shows that are delivered to the house each Saturday morning. Karen knows her mother considers this an extravagance, especially since the driver charges extra for coming all the way out to the suburbs from Chinatown. But with any luck, some of her mother's ire will be directed at Karen's younger sister, Maria. Every weekend, the girls act out fight scenes from The Return of the Condor Heroes, running around the garden and swinging broom handles at each other, landing kicks and punches while her mother occasionally looks up from her weeding to shout, avoid the head. <laughs> she doesn't mind so much that they hit each other, but insists that they avoid brain damage. At first, the sisters would toss a coin for the coveted part of Dragon Girl, who was beautiful and heroic and could boast the best weapons. An army of jade bees, commanded with a series of whistles, poisonous needles used as deadly projectiles, and the long sash that shot out from her waist to attack an opponent's pressure points in both long and short-range attacks. But Maria soon monopolized the role of Dragon Girl by refusing to play unless she was guaranteed the part, forcing Karen, unwilling to lose her only collaborator, to accept the villainous role of the Scarlet Immortal. The signature weapon of the Scarlet Immortal, a man-hating Taoist nun, was a fly whisk, a ridiculous-looking object that resembled a giant brush. Surely her mother would be able to see the injustice that had set her on this path to this ill-advised endeavor. But to Karen's surprise, her mother doesn't tut-tut when she sees the mess in the bedroom. She doesn't demand an explanation or reel off a list of culprits. She simply sweeps her hand slowly over her injured daughter and proceeds to lightly press her fingers across her body checking for breaks, sprains, cuts. Years later, Karen will think back to this moment, her mother squatting down beside her, her face darkened. But right now, 
All that Karen knows is her fear that her mother's silence is somehow connected to the severity of the injuries. Silly girl, says her mother. Karen detects an unfamiliar trembling in her voice. You should know it's not real. What do you mean it's not real? asks Maria, peering in from the doorway. Telephone, says their mother, one hand outstretched, the other smoothing strands of hair from Karen's bloody forehead. She dials 999 and says in her staccato English, Ambulance, please. June Leung, 5 Clover Hill. Accident, bad fall. No, not me, my daughter. Karen loses two incisors and a molar and a little dignity. She gains a fat pink neck brace and a swollen cheek covered with purple and yellow blooms. Maria hangs off the hospital bed frame with her gymnast arms, alternating her hands. I can't believe you were that stupid, she giggles, pretending to be Dragon Girl, sleeping on a rope. Ha 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 ha. Karen's face hurts too much to scowl, but she's consoled by the doctor's recommendation of home rest for a week, perhaps even two. That's potentially two weeks off from school. Out in the hall, Karen's mother and father talk about the restaurant being shorthanded that week. I can still cover the lunch shift tomorrow, says her mother. She'll be mostly sleeping anyway. No, Junjun, they can manage, says her father. Our little girl's had a scare. We should both stay with her, at least for a day or two. Ah, teen, you spoil her. We have to take care of our girls. Maria wouldn't be this careless. Junjun, ah, teen. Karen's parents reserve the use of their Chinese names for private debate over the girls, the business, the house, as well as for moments of intimacy. Karen knows this from years of pressing her ear against closed doors. They use their English names, June and Stanley, when speaking with English people or when they have to fill out the form. In front of the girls, they address each other by their title or function, wife slash husband or mother slash father. Sometimes Karen observes these frequent transpositions without much thought, beyond a vague admiration for her parents' talent for adaptability. At other times, when a customer nonchalantly says, chink, in the restaurant they own, or a neighbor peers over the garden fence as their father snaps the neck of a chicken, she feels a brief, nauseating unease at these interchangeable guises and how they might suggest to others that her parents are not actually who they say they are, resulting in some dreadful punishment. But right now, lying in the hospital bed, Karen doesn't care about any of this. She's just thinking, two weeks off school. She'll have to keep up a bit with homework. Her mother will see to that. But otherwise, she can just stay home and spend her days watching Mohap videos. She prays for this to be true, to whoever might be listening. The goddess of mercy, the god of war, the goddess of the sea, the god of fortune, the goddess of the moon, Jesus, the dragon girl, and her army of bees. Even the Scarlet Immortal. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> so I think the experience of reading your short stories, I was just thinking about this. It's like pretending I'm going to go out on a Friday night, but actually not. And curling up on the couch and getting a lot of pocky or a lot of... Um, I don't know, late night coffee is kind of a thing I do, and just indulging in like moods and mm. and going into, there's some shorter ones that you have that to me are just like big, like delicious moods and, you know, 
Uh, and then this one, which even though it's am very like ambitious in terms of its timeline and its characters, is just to me about you know the the way we love people and the way that people become burdens on us and that's mm -hmm. what lo love is and yep. it's just one of those that's I, I think I'm probably preaching the to the crowd but like a like a short story feeling of just really just wrapping yourself in a in an idea like that so um who doesn't I, love boots <laughs> <laughs> yeah I do too. It's, a, it's a hashtag apparently <laughs> Big so mood, there's yeah. something there yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. so so I guess I was wondering the or the the genesis of a story like that and mm -hmm. and when you when when you sit down to write like what's the first the kind of thing that comes to to mind is it an image is it an idea is it a is it a mood like what what are you working with if you can remember I think with this story it started off just as um, a completely different story actually it was mm -hmm. really it started off as um, kind of a slice of life sketch of two sisters, um, these two sisters, but they didn't have names yet, uh, and they were painting the house, the family house, every summer. Um, one because their parents didn't want to pay for actual contractors, you know, um, and um, and secondly to keep up with the neighbours as mm -hmm. a Chinese family on the street, and and um, and then. I didn't. I kind of left it raw, and they, they didn't really sort of do anything with it. And then, and then I started. I don't know why I picked it up, but I think I started thinking about the um, the parents. I think the the mother had like one scene mm -hmm. where she sees like a head of a neighbor bobbing along the hedge, mm -hmm. and when someone calls her by her English name, she doesn't answer straight away because she's not used to being called that. Mm -hmm. And um, and then I started thinking, oh. I wonder what's up with the mother, mm -hmm. and you know, and then and then it and then it became a story, um, not only about the um, the kind of the sort of brutal collisions over time of what the what a mother has to deal with in her girlhood, in wartime, uh, sort of big calamities and then smaller scale, but still like high impact calamities in terms of the daughter, and she survives a you know an assault by a. Uh, by a schoolmate, and um, but also about the secret lives of parents, mm -hmm. um, and so that's an example of a story that looked really, really different by the end. Yeah. Um, and then with the novella that's in the story, the woman in the closet, which is about this elderly woman who's homeless, and she ends up breaking into a young man's home, and. Um, she can't stand the way he runs his home or his life, so she starts tidying up surreptitiously and cooking for him. And and, um, and that actually started from a real news story. Mm. So that was... So I'm giving those two ideas because one is... A, the first one is just like an image. It's sort of you know, right. a situation. And the second one was actually an idea. Right. And um, and this, this was actually based on the news story over 10 years ago about this Japanese lady who was discovered living in the bachelor's closet for a year. And, um, and she wasn't cooking and cleaning for him, but she was, you know, just living there. And and um, I remember just being so mesmerized by that story when it first came out, and I couldn't find any more information about her. And every time I thought I found a new piece, uh, a new article, it was just the same, mm -hmm. you know, why a story sort of recycled. Mm -hmm. And I remember at the time when I would tell people about this. Oh, did you hear about that story about the Japanese woman who was found in the... The reaction was 
kind of kind of the disappointing. They mm. would there would be this like this nervous, embarrassed laughter. Mm. It's like oh how how weird how and crazy, how yeah. how crazy and how hum- how embarrassing for her to be living right. in a closet. And so that made me feel really bad, like even worse for the uh, for the lady. And I just ended up being so curious about her and yeah. um, and I'm not someone who like writes pages and pages and pages in the notebook I just let the ideas sort of knock around in my head for uh-huh. a long time and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. I had yeah. all these questions like who who was she before mm-hmm. she was the lady in the closet how did her life come to this why was she homeless who was not taking care of her mm-hmm. who had she loved who had she lost and um what did she care about now beyond basic survival so in an effort to answer these questions I ended up writing yeah this novella and that lady became Granny Ng, and Japan became present day. Japan became near future Hong Kong. We mm-hmm. don't have tent villages in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. but I think that could be on the horizon. Yeah. And um, and so uh, yeah, but uh, and I and with that story, this is really rare that I know that I wanted it to take place over the span of a year. I knew how I wanted it to end, mm-hmm. um, but the um but having those constraints gave me a lot of freedom just to mess around and yeah um digress a lot right in the, in the middle so that was that's this, that story that was really close to my heart just because I just thought oh I really I'm really I'm really rooting for granny Ng. yeah yes, <laughs> so. I was too and it's sort it I love that story because the premise is so strange you know but then when you read it there's nothing the way you kind of ease us into her story through I think empathy and and mm-hmm. your own kind of like um, curiosity about who she was and how she got there, like you mm-hmm. said, and and then the effect is um, the effect is it's every step seems very natural. You know, mm-hmm. she 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 wants to leave that her her son's house. It's her son, right? Yeah. And then and then she ends up in a in a in a tent city and and you know she encounters this woman who's kind to her and and all the details the beef soup and then and then she goes to another place and it's not quite as good and Mm -hmm. and it just this kind of very like you it seeps into it so the point when you see the closet you're like well let's get into the closet (laughs) like what else would we do it's raining outside you kind of close off the walls of you know opportunity and and you find yourself this is the situation that makes the most sense right now, mm-hmm. um, which I think is fascinating. And I wonder if you could talk a little more about um, about empathy in in writing and reading. And maybe maybe you could start by talking about the nonprofit and and yeah. voice witness and and mm-hmm. kind of maybe I don't know. I don't want to give you a one million <laughs> part question, <laughs> but just start with that. Okay. Yeah. So um, <laughs> so when I'm not writing. Um, I run a non-profit, Voice of Witness, and we interview people who've been impacted by human rights issues and their stories get edited into first-person stories and they're published as books and our education program brings these stories into classrooms around the country. And um, empathy is a huge part of that work. It's uh, what you're describing in terms of, oh, what a strange, extreme situation right. that um, uh, that just seems so uh, unfamiliar, but... But, but because of the way we're sort of eased into it, the choices feel really natural. And I think um, it's all similar to any um, any time you hear about someone who on the surface has an extreme situation, like someone who's homeless or someone who's a refugee, and you ask them to describe a day in their life, most of the time it's going to 
involve some choices or some some decisions that they need to make in order to survive mm -hmm. or retain their sense of dignity that might that most of us are lucky enough to take for granted. So I think um, it's really just about extreme circumstances and what uh, any any one of us I think would be compelled to to do in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and part of that is just, this, I mean, to me, it's a really simple thing. You just, you just, um, you just uh, adopt that person's point of view mm -hmm. and you stay with them really, really closely and you withhold judgment and you try and understand the motivation every single turn. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think yeah. that's that's what it is. And I think, I mean, I was just thinking earlier today, is it a really stupid thing to say, to think? I think I think stories, they're like the first form of VR. Like, uh -huh. I mean, in terms of immersive, uh -huh. and there's something happens in your brain on a yeah. neurological level, right? Uh -huh. like you actually experience that kind of, I mean, when I first... When I first tried VR, I, f I almost wanted to throw up because yeah. it was just so... So was, good. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, so good. But also, I mean, do I really need to go on a, right. like sure, a pretend sure. roller coaster? Um, <laughs> but there's something that happens in the body as well when you're reading about someone else's experience that's not your own. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you're going through their excitement, their trauma, their pain, their joy. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to pull out a cliche if that's okay I'm Just ready. A, who, who was it that said uh the best way to travel is to read uh, right so yeah. yeah I think so and it's different than watching tv for me anyway yeah because that's more passive yeah. um you're being you're but it's, it's kind of like I feel like watching tv or a movie is like getting a massage mm -hmm. but reading is like doing yoga Oh. You're giving yourself the massage. I like that. <laughs> I don't that's know. good. No, that's good. <laughs> See, you start from the cliche and then you end somewhere really fantastic. Really deep. This, is, yeah. this is writing. Yeah. <laughs> um, what else did I want to... I wanted to talk about kind of your own or have you talk about your own, um, your own journey in writing fiction. And I know that you... you it's, it's been a long journey, mm -hmm. right? A couple of years. And so can you talk about, <laughs> sorry, a few years? It's I also wish. been a few years for all of us. Uh, but, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's, talk about, you know, I guess the process of getting to this book. And because I know the nonprofit and kind of fostering other people's stories has been yeah. a big part of that. Um, and then what, what brought you to fiction? What brought you back? I guess simplest. Um, I've always, I mean, I've always loved reading. I was a big reader as a kid. Uh, my parents, uh, when we were little, we didn't have money to go on vacation, so I'd spend most summer holidays sitting on the floor of the local library, just reading my way through the shelves. Mm -hmm. And um, so I've always loved reading. And and I think it was in high school, uh, we had like a visiting writer just oh. for the, for a day or Who? something. I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> can't remember. I was a teenager, sure, full, of, sure. full of hormones. Right. And um, uh, were they cute? Uh, possibly. Maybe. Can't remember. Can't okay. remember. I'm, right. more, I'm more about the art. Than me, I, I got you. I got you. Um, and um, and then he had us all write a short story, and I think that's when I wrote my first short story. And it was bad, uh -huh. but he was encouraging. No. He said, "These are things that aren't working, but." It's a good idea, and just keep writing. And um, oh, wow. and then uh, yeah, I just like writing for fun. I mean, when I was in living in Hong Kong and I was doing like, all kinds of jobs, I was always writing just for fun. And when I was teaching, 
I was not a very good teacher. Um, I mean, I was, I was a good teacher, but I didn't, I didn't do student hours. I would just write, oh, I'd hide yeah. under my table. That's and the move. Right. And the then move. Um, I was also a bad teacher. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. J.K. Rowling said she was a bad teacher as really? well. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And she kept, right. she kept a very messy house because you, <laughs> oh, really? you can't have it all, right? Oh, you just right. can't. Um, <laughs> not, we're not Murphy Brown. No. Anyway. And, um, but then, but yeah, and then I did my MFA. When it, when it became clear that I really wanted to write all day, every day, then I came to San Francisco, went to San Francisco State, did my MFA for three years, and I did nothing but read and write, uh. and read about writing, and write about reading, and all of that, so it was just amazing, Dreamy. it was probably, the, yeah, it was probably the best three years of my life, honestly, right. it's like a vacation, yep. um, it was very, very lucky, yeah. and um and so the yeah, and thinking back, yeah, maybe the money that I spent moving here and on grad school, I could have maybe bought a house by now in London. But hey, no regrets. <laughs> no, we can't know, think about because, that. It's important because <laughs> because it was just personally so enriching. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I don't think about it. My dad reminds me about it sometimes. <laughs> um, but um, uh, but yeah, and and so that was amazing. And then and then soon after my MFA, I started. Um, the nonprofit, and that was incredibly consuming and mm-hmm. rewarding. And uh, but I kind of started, and I sent the collection out. There was my thesis, it was a short story collection, which looked very different from this. Mm-hmm. Sent it out to a bunch of places, note takers. So I thought, okay, I'm not meant to be a writer, mm-hmm. um, I'll do something else. And mm-hmm. so, uh, but I was still right now and again. But I didn't really sort of get back into it as a regular practice until maybe six or seven years into nonprofit life. Right. And, and then uh, what was that moment when you were like, ah, I've been pulled back into the story world? I think, I think part of it was just like missing it and then yeah. seeing other people talk about what I write every day. And I think, oh, damn you. <sighs> yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> but also being encouraged by other people who also came through the program or people, writers that I met out and about in San Francisco who were publishing their work that was that was encouraging and they were very encouraging to me as well and mm-hmm. and then also just getting more help honestly yeah. with a non-profit I didn't feel like I had to uh, do it all myself and right so yeah I had a really really lovely group of people yeah at work who said yeah take Fridays mm-hmm. off right right you know, do it you know uh-huh. um so I did and and now I've got this book. So. Ah, right? <laughs> it's like balancing work and especially with short stories because short stories, I don't know if anyone has heard, are not the greatest money-making enterprise in the world. Sorry. Um, but, they're, but they're a labor of love for mm-hmm. me and for you. And yeah. so it's, I, I've found it's, it's always been the game is balancing what we have to do to do what we want to do have you found that to be true yeah I'm really lucky because I really love what I do Mm -hmm. to pay the bills as well yeah I mean I started off at Voice Winners as a volunteer if I didn't have to do it I would still do it as a volunteer so I feel really really lucky (laughs) um and um yeah Mm -hmm. but yeah so if Voice Winners didn't exist I'd be doing something else probably but still volunteering at whatever incarnation but um yeah, I feel really, really lucky, honestly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is it is a juggle. I have to sort of sacrifice other things. Yeah. So like dishes. I know. I wasn't <laughs> laundry. Gonna, I didn't, if you yeah. didn't want to go there, I wasn't going to send you there. Yeah. What do you have to sacrifice? I also sacrifice dishes. Yeah. Yeah. 
and um, my personal relationships, but Aww. that's not. Yeah, know, it's a downer. We can talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, over drink, over yeah. The bar. <laughs> um, so, so what writers, when you were reading your way across the library, were your first kind of loves? Um, I actually, uh, I think it was. So it might have been someone at work who told me that Beverly Cleary was still alive, that she just oh. turned a hundred and something. So I remember reading Ramona. Powerful witch. And uh, yeah, I think she's actually a witch. Yeah. yeah. Um, Ramona, the Ramona books were sweet. Do those people know the Ramona books? Yeah. So I had such a lack of role models when I was, uh, uh, when I was um, growing up that, um, that like, when I watch Charlie's Angels, be oh the dark haired one I identify with because oh. she's dark hair. Yeah. And then Ramona Quinn because she had I had the same haircut as her, that bowl haircut uh-huh. and I was kind of lanky kid. And um and I love the way that Beverly Cleary wrote about poverty. Oh. Um and you know and uh and also just needing to make ends meet, having a bossy older sister and having such rage fits that you, I think I remember this one scene where Ramona's lying on her bed with her feet up against the wall and she's so furious that she just like kicks the wall to <laughs> shit, you know. And um, so she was an early influence. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm no, not I actually love really, really serious. I always like to hear the first, yeah. the first ones, first loves. Yeah. And yeah. then Maxine Hong Kingston when I was 14, I thought, oh yeah, this I can see myself in... In literature, finally, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and because I went to war in the place of my father as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dress yes, up as yes, a boy. Very, yeah, very and um, yeah, <laughs> um, and um, and then when I was writing the book, I don't know. I mean, I love I love Alice Munro. She's mm-hmm. she's my queen. short story queen yes. goddess. Uh, just the way that her writing is really un—it's very sophisticated, but it's very unfussy. Yeah, it doesn't draw attention to itself. I can see but then she just cast the spell, and um, and I think I've think I've sort of might have had the launch for this book in San Francisco this past Tuesday, and I think I might have pissed off some people in the audience because <laughs> they were, I can't remember we were talking about language and beautiful language, and I said, yeah, beautiful language is overrated. It's kind <laughs> of like a really well produced movie or like a you know something that's presented as like prestige drama and it's uh-huh. just it's just high production values a lot of money but there's not that much story yeah there, and there's not that much sophistication and I think there's a lot of some writing like that too where on a sentence level it's really beautiful mm-hmm. but so what right you know I'm not feeling anything like an airy kind of sweet that afterwards you're like that was mostly just sugar and nothing else yeah like or that. just or even like oh yes that is a that's that's a very beautifully polished and like a sentence but but it's almost like you know you want I, I want to fall under a spell yeah I don't want to smell the ingredients is that cumin is that <laughs> is that you know I think and so I want it to be seamless and right. I don't want to be I don't want to have to stop to say wow that's an amazing sentence uh-huh. you yeah, know? I, yeah I want to get to the end of a story and be like what the fuck just happened? Right. You know? So right, that's um, the mood. I think. I think that's maybe that's I, the mood. That's yeah. The role. Yeah. 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 Because there's there's like um, I I kind of think of it as sometimes as writing for writers, sort of like yeah. I've heard comedians do comedy for comedians sometimes, and it's like a, you know, it's a it's a certain set that like they know that you know this whole lineage of guys and, yeah. <laughs> and that you're going to do yeah. something that that's in that, but it doesn't really make sense to like someone who's just wandering in off sunset Boulevard. And, and I think, um, yeah, I don't want to be a writer's writer. I want to be a reader's writer. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> that's a good quote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same. You can quote me on that, <laughs> I, I will. but don't put it on the internet. Cause yeah, please, we're out yeah. take down the podcast. I might, I might not get that book deal. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, 
So I wanted to read a little bit of your writing too, mm. because I'm nothing if not a joiner, and uh, <laughs> because there's some there's a very short one that I that I want to read just a couple pages of. Um, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, a reasonable person, including I was going to pull up the song, the Ravel song that you mentioned. Oh yeah, go on. Uh, um, I made a playlist for. Did anyone know the the blog Large Hearted Boy? It's a literature and music playlist, a uh, blog, blog. Um, it's and cool. they have they have people like amazing writers, uh, really like you know big deal writers, and then people like me who um, <laughs> who they're asked to put together a playlist for their book, and so I put one together, yeah. and um, and so there's a it's just just up online now, but there's a this one piece of piece piece by Ravel that I. Chose as a companion piece to this. Um, Did you say it was judo? Yeah. Okay, I've got it. Um, so I, it's like when you said that I love the large-hearted boy companion. You guys should check it out. It's like, like for when you're in the bath with this book, and then you put on the playlist, and it's like perfection. It's Lots like this is the meal, and the playlist is the wine or something. Exactly. Yeah. Or the wine that you're drinking is the wine, and the playlist is the playlist. The <laughs> playlist is like the cheesy snacks. Okay. Well, it could be whatever you like. <laughs> We're not fussy. We're not fussy. <laughs> okay, um, so I'll I'll just read a, a little bit of it with Judo um, play. Oh, good! You got to read it with the music. Okay. Oh just, yes. Yeah, sure. We're bringing it. Okay. okay. Oh, I love it. Okay. <laughs> this is so. Do I to hold that for you? Mm, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. Full service. Um, with almost two hours to spare until the Hungshing Plastics anniversary dinner, and with the hotel crawling with sweaty executives and managers, they are everywhere: the lobby, the bar in elevators and corridors. The young couple in 501 decide to hide in their room until they are required to join the others in the grand ballroom. They make use of the time. They strip down to their underwear and watch the first half of TV documentary on pandas, make love, and play eight rounds of gin rummy. She carries a deck of cards wherever they travel. The husband, feeling badly about attending his company dinner on their one-year anniversary, deliberately loses the first five, last five games. He does this, his punishment of 10 push-ups, the last five with a hand behind his back. She applauds, and he gives a theatrical bow and retreats to the bathroom where he starts running the shower. When her husband emerges from the bathroom, she says, how was your shower? And he says, too wet, and she laughs. She changes into one of the dresses she has brought on this trip and smooths down the sides as she turns left and right in the mirror. She straightens her husband's tie, and they go down to the ballroom, where most people have already found their seats. A speech, some awards, a slide presentation on the new factory site. The president feigns disappointment that the dinnerware is not made of plastic, a joke he's apparently made at all of the previous anniversary dinners. Food, alcohol, dancing. Tired from wine and small talk, she excuses herself at an acceptable hour and stumbles up to the room, where she falls into a restless sleep. Sometime later, her husband comes in, warm and heavy from brandy. Under the dark, moonlit chandelier, they work to ignore the sticky heat, trying different ways to be together so that no gaps are left unclosed. The room is high-ceilinged with a paradise mural whose curling vines lurk and spread like shadows across the walls. The sparkling, constant purr of cicadas pours in from a nearby field. The two of them pull closer in the half-dark, the bed feels so large it makes her think of a raft floating on a lake. For several hours she dreams of nothing than apples, 
Later in the dark, she awakes feeling thirsty and a little hungry. She thinks of the kettle somewhere in the room and fruit in a basket that had been left on the side table. But instead of getting up straight away, she decides to lie there for a moment as she watches the moonlight and vines and shadows swimming about the room, the chandelier above them shimmering quiet. She thinks, this is what it means to be happy. I am happy. Before her husband, she had never been on a plane, never stayed in a hotel. In fact, she used to clean rooms like this with her mother. She wonders why she feels this obligation to cherish the moment, and she knows it is because she imagines that, like all good things, it might not last. This takes away a little of her happiness. And she is still thirsty, thirstier than before. She is thirstier than she is happy, and this does not seem right to her. She is lying very close to her husband, his skin warm and breathing. She wants very much to pull him closer and wrap her arms around his chest and squeeze him, but she is afraid to wake him. For a while, she does nothing except observe the tiny, cool gaps where their bodies can't meet. But the longer she observes, the more gaps she finds and the more unhappy she becomes. But this time, she's more unhappy than she's happy. But as long as she's thirstier than she's unhappy, things might still be all right. She decides she should stop thinking about the gaps where she and her husband cannot meet and try instead to relax and observe the moonlight, the swimming shadows, the way they reached for each other in the night, the chandelier shimmering silently above them. The room passes into darkness, then the moon returns, and the chandelier crystals catch the light and swallow it whole. One crystal, hanging on the outer edge, mesmerizes her. When she tilts her head a little in one direction, the crystal throws out a sharp, alarming light. Another way, and it slips into dark. Another way, and she sees the extraordinary light trapped inside, cool, glowing, pulsing. Slowly, she peels her arm from under her husband's, feeling moist stickiness and then a light cooling on her skin. Blood rushes back into her limb. He turns away, taking some of the sheet with him. She slips out from under the covers, tiptoes to the foot of the bed, and stands under the chandelier. Her hands find the hard back of a chair, and she pulls it towards her and climbs onto it. It wobbles a little under her. She stands up slowly and then, with careful fingers, reaches up for her crystal, unhooking it and bringing it to her chest. It is bumpy and cool. She opens her palm and stares at the dark thing. Then she looks up and sees that there are many more, all still glowing. She reaches up again toward the middle this time and plucks out a smaller one, then another, then another, until they almost spill from her hand and chest and there's nothing left to do but stand there, slightly elated, cradling her bounty. The pieces of blunt, warm glass begin sticking to her skin. I think I'll stop. Oh, you might as well finish it. That's <laughs> the end. All right, all right, all right. <clears throat> I'll, I'll go to the page break. I did all things. Okay, so okay. Yes, ma'am. All right. She imagines herself then naked on a badly made chair, dismembering a chandelier, and her skin starts to tingle with shame. Slowly, she climbs down. She takes the chandelier pieces and lays them on the carpet under the bed. This is my favorite part. Then she sits in the chair with her hands in her lap and thinks about how, compared to when she first awoke, she probably does not have that much happiness left. And her body is not forgotten. She is thirsty still, thirstier than before. She wants water so badly. Surely it's all right to want that. She can go to the kettle and pour herself a glass, but she notices now that that even now her thirst is still greater than her unhappiness, and as long as this is true, she might be okay. When her husband finally does stir, the room is bright with morning. His face is pale, squashed from sleep, his features soft and blurred. 
He yawns and sees her sitting in the chair and says, What are you doing over there, May? His hair is sticking up at the back at the back like a duckling's tail. He looks somehow younger, and there's a question in his eyes, almost helpless or expecting, as if he knows she's been leading a secret life and is waiting for a confession. And she replies, Nothing. I just got up. Want some coffee? She goes over to him and kisses him on the forehead. While he is in the shower, she drinks five glasses of water, and after that she gathers up the chandelier pieces gets back on the chair and one by one hooks them back into place, all except for one. Later that morning, sitting next to her husband on the flight back to Hong Kong, she drinks an orange juice and clutches her head during the descent. She reaches into her pocket and squeezes the crystal, digging its edges into her flesh. She thinks of an apple being slowly peeled. She, then she thinks of bolts of silk spilling out with quick drama. She tells herself that somehow it will happen, it must happen, a time when she will be able to tell someone everything and not want or fear anything. Well, you did such a great job reading that. I love that I loved story. hearing you read it. I feel like I'm hearing it differently. It's so, now you know what I mean. This is the big mood. Thank you so much. Oh, it was such a beautiful reading. My pleasure. Okay. Well, so I'm, won I'm wondering if, um, if we might have a couple audience questions. Um, for Mimi, um, one or two. Hi. <laughs> Mm. Uh, did everyone hear the question? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I don't edit that much at first. I used to be a chronic tinkerer, trying to make every sentence perfect before I moved on to the next. But now I don't really worry about whether it's... I think it's really liberating not trying to make something. So it's the thing with when editing a, a human rights narrative in the voice witness mod is that you just want everything to be as... Um, as aligned to the intention of the speaker as possible, right? Nothing, like no repetitions or not, no kind of ums, ahs that distract from the point that the speaker is making. And it's kind of similar to writing fiction in a way, but what's really liberating about not, not caring about making the sentence particularly beautiful or pretty is that you'd only, I'm only concerned with trying to accurately capture the thought or the feeling at the moment, even if I don't have the exact words. Sometimes I'll just put TK or brackets, question mark, mm -hmm. uh, or like something like da da da, you know, and then the next time I go back to it, it's kind of like circling, circling something and you haven't quite nailed it down yet. So I think as long as I've got that and then, and if it happens to be, if it happens to be a beautiful sentence, then great. And if not, then it doesn't really matter either. Um, I think one of the one of my favourite things that someone said uh, in a review recently of the book is uh, something like seemingly simple but deep at heart. Mm. I thought I'll take it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's nice. But um, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah. More yeah. questions.
Well, there's someone else who did the MFA here as well, so you might be able to speak to that. I um, I I uh, yeah. So I I went to San Francisco State, which is known as a commuter college. So loads of people had families, jobs, big full lives outside the MFA, and and so not everyone was doing a full time course load. They had to attend to their lives, and so lots of people had regular jobs, like their job jobs, career jobs. Um. And um, I mean, I know someone who was working as a psychiatrist when whilst doing her MFA, and many people working as servers. I would say if you if you want to make something that pays the bills, I would say work as a server rather than in the literary. <laughs> Honestly, mm. you, you're going to get better pay. Truly. And um, and and I think it really depends whether so there's paying the bills, but then also doing a job like deciding if you feel like you need to the the paying the bills job if you want that to also kind of inform or enrich your writing mm. as well or whether you want it to be completely separate mm -hmm. and um i mean my job directly before doing the mfa was teaching and it was teaching at an all-girls catholic school in hong kong nothing literary whatsoever and uh, but i was writing stories during that time and it was great because it was there was a job that allowed me to do that um, when I when I was younger, one of my dream jobs was to be a mail a, a, a postal worker, actually de delivering mail, not in the you know. Because mm -hmm. um, I thought, oh, I could just like, walk around, I'll get fit. Um, <laughs> I can finish by three p.m. or something like that, and and then I'll paint watercolors or or write stories <laughs> the rest of the afternoon. Um, so it really depends what I mean. If if you have the if you have a choice, um, maybe just like find out what that is. But yeah, you've got to pay the bills. It's, mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't want to get in too much debt. And good luck with your MFA. Yes. Yeah. I did medical testing. Hey. But I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, that that can literally take a lot out of you, right? right? So mostly blood. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe yeah. maybe one more question. Hey. Um, I'm wondering if you would speak to something about the parallels between Socrates and Democritus and literary writing. Um, and my other question was about the emotional investment um, that you had to make with, in the creation of the story and then later when you're editing and having to essentially let go of certain things that you um, created. Mm-hmm. So the parallel between visual art and writing and then emotional investment in writing and editing. Visual and, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a visual artist. I have a fine art degree. I, I was an artist for a while. And, um, but I don't consider myself an artist, really. So, um, and the two never really overlapped. I was an artist and then I wasn't and then I was a writer. And so, but I think they do to inform each other. I mean, you know, uh, life informs whatever your writing is, right? And so I can, like, I love going to museums because I look at a painting and I'll be like, oh yeah, I'm feeling things. And then, and then that somehow consciously or, or unconsciously will go into the writing. So yeah, in that way, definitely, yeah. But, um, but I can't speak more, uh, more intelligently on that than that way. But, um, but in terms of emotional investment, yeah, sometimes it hurts, you know, but... But the only thing I think, um, I think as long as it feels emotionally true, it doesn't hurt to cut things. I think what used to hurt was when 
I had this like a hundred dollar sentence, a ten dollar sentence or something, and I had to cut it because it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And and after cutting those for a while, then you realize it's, it's okay. It's just a pretty sentence. It's just like you know. It's like I know. It's like I I can't I can't really compare it to anything more than like when you're when you're younger and you see picture black and white photos of. Um, you know, French people smoking, and you think, "Oh, that looks really cool. I want to be like that." And then you realise, "No, oh, it gives you lung cancer," and you know, and it's not that actually that cool. It's kind of, it's like sentences that are really kind of impressive, but mm. but do they actually mean anything to you? Rather than, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I I, I love I, I I love poetry. I have mm-hmm. to say, I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not poets. I have I'm some, not against some of my best friends are poets. Some of my best friends are poets. <laughs> I'm not against beautiful writing, uh-huh. but just beauty. Odd, like surface beauty, yeah. Um, yeah. So it wasn't. It it, it it gets easier to cut mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that question. Well, thank you all for coming, and thank you, Mimi. Thanks, for Amelia, for your great questions. Thanks yeah. for your lovely reading. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And thanks, Skylight. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.